that Lazarus, a very good friend, has died. And he has come to Bethany where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live. Before he reaches their home, Martha comes out to greet him and we join that conversation. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and, she is a- and he is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied, and Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. The word of God for the people of God. Praise be to God. Well, I've got to admit that I'm a little bit insecure about even opening up my mouth to speak after listening to Ken read that scripture. (laughs) Somehow I feel a a little less manly. I appreciate that, Ken. That was a wonderful, wonderful reading, and and that will tie into what we're talking about today in Ephesians 2, so go ahead and get out your Bibles. We'll have the the scripture on the the screen, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Well, one of three things has happened. One, either I did something really, really well that I'm not aware of in order to have the privilege of of speaking on such a wonderful text. Somehow I don't think that's uh, the option. Or I got really, really lucky. Or third, Buddy just thought, man, this is such a wonderful passage that nobody could mess this one up. And that may be the case. But Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10 is where we'll be. Uh, today. 
just a beautiful passage and really one of the most vivid pictures uh, of our salvation found in the entire Bible, uh, beloved by many. Let's read from Ephesians 2 today. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. As a child, I was enamored with the song, Low in the Grave He Lay. And if you've grown up, in, particularly in the, in the Church of Christ, you may be very, very familiar with that song. And I remember uh, just getting so excited as a child whenever those numbers were called. And there was something just uh, deep and mysterious and, and just something that would draw me in uh, to that hymn. And the way that we sang it in the church that I grew up uh, at is we would sing all three verses and then we'd just explode into the chorus. And maybe you sang it that way too. And I loved how it just, how it just built. And, and, and while the, the melody and the lyrics of the chorus are no doubt beautiful and, and, and ominous and mysterious as they build up into the resurrection of Christ, as a kid, I, I just felt like there was something so bleak and just kind of dark about the verses. But then it was a party when we got to the chorus. And in so many ways, as I, as I study the passage this week, as I think about Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the structure of that song, that hymn, Low in the Grave He Lay, is so similar uh, to what we're going to read, what we're going to dive into today in Ephesians 2. Because the first three verses are, seem hopeless. There's a, there's a darkness to those first three verses, our, our, our former reality, our, our former identity as we look into who do we think we are compared to who we are now in Christ. That's where we're going uh, today, church, was lay out all the cards on the table. It's the gospel. It's where we were compared to where we are now, the reality that we find ourselves in if indeed we are in Christ Jesus, if we put our faith in him. So I, I don't know about you, but I come to this text today, and I come away from this text with a couple questions I want us to discuss in our time. One, was it really that bad? As you look back at verses 1 through 3 that we'll read again here in a few minutes, was it really that bad? Can it really, 
could it really have been that awful, that hopeless? And second, as you look through the rest, as, you, as we build up to the chorus of verses 4 through 10, can it really be that good? Is what Paul's describing, is that really who we are? Do we really taste now the benefits of what Paul's saying in verses 4 through 10? See, up to this point, in Ephesians 1, Paul goes through all of our possessions in Christ, right? And Buddy's been talking about that for the past couple weeks. We have all these wonderful possessions, this wonderful inheritance if we belong to Jesus. Paul says it right off the bat that we have been given every spiritual blessing. We have the riches of a glorious inheritance. We have the, the promised Holy Spirit. We have the riches of God's grace, We have the knowledge of his will and on and on and on. You can just list them. It's a long list of possessions that we've accumulated if we belong to Jesus Christ. Now Paul is going to focus on our position in Jesus. We know what we have, but where do we really find ourselves? And in order to understand where we are now, church... As a people of God, we have to go back and understand who we were apart from Jesus. So the operative word in this scripture is the word saved. And Paul says it twice, he really wants us to get it. But the whole text is really an explanation of what it means to be saved. And what we have in, in Ephesians 2 is, is a story, right? It's the gospel wrapped up in this concise text. It's this transfer from death to life. It's a story of rescue. Plain and simple, you and I were dead in sin, wallowing in our own filth, without hope, without life, destined for hell. That's where we were. And then God intervened and he saved us. When we talk about being saved, we generally talk about our our salvation experience being in the past tense. Well, tell me about your conversion. Tell me about how you were saved. And then we come up with our, our, our story of, of how we came to, to know Jesus Christ. We say, well, that's when, I was, that's when I was saved. That was my salvation. But when, we, when, when Paul talks about salvation, when we dive into the New, New Testament, we see the, the beauty and the story of the gospel. We see that salvation is, is really threefold. It's not just something that happened, but it's something that is continuing to happen. It's, it's all-consuming. And, and, and the, the preacher and the uh, what did you call that? The, the, the preacher mash? The sermon jam. Yeah, now that was cool. I was like, we just need to go home right now. That was awesome. And he, he touched on it. That this, this all-consuming salvation is not just something that happened, but it's something that is happening, and it's something that, that will happen. And this is how we want to explain. A.W. Pink, a theologian, in his book, The Redeemer's Return, says it this way. In the New Testament, salvation is threefold in its scope, past, present, and future. And it is threefold in its character, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. Every believer has been saved from the penalty of sin, but we shall yet be saved from the very presence of sin. And at our Lord's return, we shall be completely emancipated from the dominion and pollution of sin. See, even though we have been saved and we stand faultless before God because of the work of Jesus 
on the cross. We may continue to struggle with sin. And God is still making us new. So in that sense, we are, are being saved. Right now, at this very moment, we are being saved. I know we walk in here today struggling with sin. We've experienced some defeats this week. But we have the promise that God is making us new. He is still remaking us. So we are being saved. And additionally, we have the hope that one day, the presence of sin will be no more. That Jesus will come and he'll take us home And there will be no more sin. We'll be completely whole in Christ. And in that sense, we will be saved. See, salvation is is all-consuming. But what have we been saved from? Again, before we can really understand our identity in Christ Jesus today, we have to understand who we are apart from Christ. So go back with me to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And all of us, all of us, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. See, church, we have three enemies that we want to identify today. Three forces that stand opposed to us to make war. The first enemy we identify as the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And that is Satan, our adversary. Many, many uh, mentions of him, especially uh, in the Old Testament. But we make a couple mistakes when we think about uh, the enemy. The first is that we tend to underestimate him. Somehow it's, it's easier for us to believe in a being that is for us, a, a being that loves us, a, a being that, that is for our benefit in God. It's much easier for, for many to believe in that than it is for us to believe in a being that is very much opposed to us, that is bent on our destruction. But the writers of scripture, God wants to make it clear to us that we do have this enemy. Peter calls him a a, a roaring lion that prowls around looking for someone to devour. Is he real? Yes. Is he a threat? Yes. I'll make the case today that he is not the marquee player. He is not the one that has set us apart from Christ. Because the second error when it comes to the devil is that we overestimate him. While scripture does point to the devil for the entrance of sin, sometimes we tend to overemphasize him. Because he's not the main player in our destruction. Consider what one man says. Many modern Christians give far too much attention and power to the devil, almost as if he were omnipresent. The Bible does not present a cosmological dualism as if God and the devil were virtual equals wrestling for humanity. Only one supreme being exists, God. Fear or anxiety about the devil and his forces do not derive from scripture, nor does fascination or preoccupation. Obviously, balance is required. Paul does see a threat here. 
but he is more concerned that people have aligned with the ruler of this world than that they will be overpowered by him. In the end, the blame is not placed on the devil, but on us, church. We have chosen to follow our desires, and our society has reinforced the choice. And that leads to our, our second enemy, the ways of this world. Imagine how far you would travel away from home if one day you began taking steps down the same path, the same well-worn, popular path that you saw everybody else around you walking down. Imagine how far you would travel from home. Spiritually speaking, the life of one who is without Christ is like that. We, we have turned our backs on God. Running towards selfishness, running away from the Lord, following the ways of this world, the second enemy. What are the, the ways of the world? Uh, consider our world's obsession with the pursuit of power and riches and beauty and control and pleasure and acceptance. All these things that our society worships and holds up as dear. And we have made these things idols instead of pursuing the things that God really wants for us. The one who belongs to Christ is the one who, instead of walking down that path, they turn and daily repent and walk back to God. And they run to him and they say, he is all I need. He is what I want. I'm going to follow in his ways. I will not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, Romans 12, 2. But instead, I'm going to set my life to be transformed by the daily renewing of my mind so that I can test what God's will is. I can see the beauty of the Lord. That's what the one who belongs to Christ does. Our third enemy is our sinful nature, our flesh. It's desires and it's thoughts. According to the Bible, we were born sinners by nature. We were born, we inherited a sinful nature. But we are also sinners by choice. Sin is both something we inherit as well as a lifestyle that we choose. But make no mistake, don't let yourself off the hook today. We, more than the devil, are to blame when it comes to our hopeless spiritual plight before Jesus. In our former life, we lived by our sinful desires, doing whatever they told us. And therefore, we were sons of disobedience. We were sons and daughters of disobedience. And because of that sinful nature, deserving of wrath. But now we get to the chorus, right? In verse 4, in many other translations, two words change everything, right? But God. But God. Here's the rescuer. Here's the hero. The one to come in and, and save us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ. I want you to begin to hear the word with Christ as we read through the passage. He made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with 
him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Part of the beauty of our salvation is that we're not only saved from death, we're not saved from destruction and hell, we are saved for something. The story's not over. We're saved for something glorious, something majestic. A life of purpose and significance and meaning that I believe is so much further than anything we can comprehend. We were the walking dead. We are now living masterpieces, expressed in that word handiwork, which we'll get into in a little bit. One of my favorite shows on TV, um, on AMC, there's a show called The Walking Dead. Just a little show of hands, how many of you guys are into The Walking Dead? So there's, there's a few of us. My wife won't watch it with me. But I enjoy it, and, and the, the plot for The Walking Dead is it's about a small group of, of, of survivors in, in the, the zombie apocalypse. And they're just, they're just fighting and struggling to maintain hope and humanity. And there's really a lot of depth to the show as you see them just wrestle together with what it means to hold on to life in a world that's dominated by walkers, the dead, those that have been infected, that are without life, without hope, without purpose, without anything going on up here at all. They're the walking dead. That's who we were, church. The walking dead. That's who anybody outside of Christ is. The walking dead. But who are we now? We are living masterpieces. Buddy said it last week. One of my favorite quotes, but it bears repeating from St. Irenaeus. The glory of God is man fully alive. That's his purpose. My favorite scripture, John 10.10. 10. Jesus has identified the thief, right? One of the enemies. He says, the thief has come to steal and kill and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and that you'd have it to the full, that you'd have it abundantly because that's my purpose. That's why I came. He also says his purpose was come to seek and save the lost. Our Lord is a rescuer. It's who he is. And we are alive with Christ. Paul points it out twice in this text, almost as, if he, almost as if he can't believe it himself. We were dead in our transgressions, that Christ made us alive while we were still in sin. The Gospels contain three accounts of Jesus raising someone physically from the dead. The widow's son in Luke 7, Jairus' daughter in Luke 8, and Lazarus in John 11 that we read about earlier. Each of us belonging to Christ will experience a physical resurrection. But our spiritual resurrection is greater because it puts us in absolute union with Jesus Christ. Paul made that clear as he continued to repeat and wanted us to know 
that what we are experiencing, this rescue, this new life, is with Jesus. We're not by ourselves, that we are eternally bonded to him, that we are with Christ because of salvation. This is significant. As members of his body, we're united to him. And as a result, we share in the resurrection life. And we share in the power that we've already seen in Ephesians 1. Additionally, we are raised with Christ and we are seated with Christ. And this is a beautiful picture. We're not raised from the dead and, and, and left in the graveyard. Jesus said to Lazarus, to his friends, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let him continue to walk in life that I've given him. So we're not left in, in the graveyard. We're raised up with Jesus into the heavenly realms. We're seated with him. We sit in the throne room of glory. Here is the point of all this resurrection business. Whatever is true of Jesus' resurrection is true of our resurrection. If Christ is exalted to God's right hand, then so are we. We are joined with Jesus, made alive in him, raised with him seated in the heavenly realms with him. And this is echoed in other places. This is not an isolated instance where Paul says, oh yeah, by the way. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. In verse 3, for your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Is that not a beautiful picture that your life, if you belong to Jesus, is hidden with him? That no one can even see you anymore. That when they look at you, they see the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has eclipsed you. You are hidden with him. I love that. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is really too wonderful to comprehend. It's too wonderful to even try to stand up here as a human being and try to explain that what God has accomplished for Christ, he has accomplished for us. As co-heirs of that inheritance. And he did all this so that he could lavish us. I love that word. He could lavish us with an inexhaustible supply of his love and his mercy and his grace. So when we talk about salvation, grace is the key ingredient. So it kicks it all in motion. Paul makes it clear in scripture, he says it twice. It is by grace you have been saved. It is the gift of God. Church in Christ, not only do we not get what we deserved in death and destruction and hell, that's the Lord's mercy at work. We do not receive what we deserved, but we receive grace. We receive a saving grace that bonds us eternally to a loving Creator. We receive an intimacy with Him. We're just not left to the graveyard. Grace is the act of God alone. Paul wants, Paul wants it to be very clear here. We want to be very clear here today. The, the gift of grace is just that. It is a gift. 
It is not a reward. Some of us in here today, we, we, we came into church just feeling really, really good about ourselves. Maybe we feel really good about being here this Sunday because we had a good week and we did a lot of great things that we feel like would impress the Lord. And so we, we, we feel good, like I had a good week. The Word says that you're no better off than, than, than the, the person that just came in just having experienced so much defeat. And we all experience the same, the same gift of grace. We don't work for or earn our salvation. We can by no means work for any status or any standing before God. Let me be clear. There's absolutely nothing you can do to improve your standing before God. Nothing allows you to stand before Him other than His incomprehensible yes to you and me. That's the gift of grace. Paul says, make sure there's no boasting. Make sure of it. Paul really, really wants all the glory and praise and honor to go to God alone. So no matter how hard you try, no matter how many good things you've done to merit God's love, no matter how much you may secretly admire uh, the good things, the good accomplishments, thinking that somehow they cause God to stand up and applaud you. Those works don't save you. You are saved by Jesus alone, not by what you do for him. This is tough. Sometimes accepting grace is really tough, especially for those of us that want to be in control, that want to be masters of our own destiny. And I would raise my hand and say, I I, I like being in control. I like calling the shots. I like being a factor in determining what happens the rest of my day or week or month. I want to have a hand in it. But when it comes to salvation, you have no hand in it. Zero. This is why it's difficult accepting grace. Because some would say, well, that's so so easy. And in a sense it is, right? It's easy. It's, it's, It's a gift. It's unmerited favor. Just take it. But that's hard for us. Because what it means is that you and I come empty-handed before God. We say, I have, I have nothing. We have to admit that to ourselves. We have to admit that to those around us. That we don't have it all together. That we can't save ourselves and ultimately admit it to God. We say, I have nothing. I'm completely and utterly dependent on you to save me, to rescue me. And that's the beautiful acceptance of the grace of God. He alone is able So now what? What difference does grace make? What difference does salvation make? Okay, great, we don't get hell. We get heaven. See you there, right? That's it, right? Of course, it's, of course that's not it. Of course there's more. Because with Jesus Christ, there's always more. Paul ends this section of scripture with this in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, I brought along some handiwork today. I don't have it in my hands, but I have a a picture of it on the screen. These are two of my most prized possessions. They hang in my office. It's the handiwork, the canvas, the masterpiece, two of them, of my sons. 
Uh, several years ago, I think Jonah was probably five and Micah was three, uh, Crystal gave them an assignment. She said, I want you to paint a picture of something that you love to do with daddy. And so she gave them these two canvases and they thought for a little while. And this is what they came up with. Jonah, who was five at the time, and I love to ask people when they come in the office, what do you think they're doing? And some people figured out, there at the top, Jonah loves to play baseball. And, and, and I love to play baseball with him. It's just something that we love to do as a family. And so Jonah drew a picture of us uh, playing baseball. That bat is probably uh, too big for the league he plays in. It looks like, a, like a, a caveman's bat. But that's what he's doing. He's playing baseball with me. And these pictures won't mean much to you, but they're my kids' handiwork. So they're masterpieces to me. And then that one below is Micah. Micah picked out a memory from when our family was in the Great Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee. And we're skipping rocks and we're jumping along the rocks of the chimney's picnic area there in the park. And he just held on to that. And that was a day that he cherished and that I cherished. And so my kids' canvases, their masterpieces, hang in my office to remind me of, of, of their handiwork that they put their heart and soul into. The Lord has put his heart and soul into you and I. He's made us. We are his masterpiece. We are his prized possession. We are his handiwork. Created for good works. You know, this Greek word for handiwork is is poema. We derive our English word poem from that work, from that word. We are his handiwork, his poetry, his new creation. And so what does what, what does he want to do with us? His poetry, his his new creation. Well, the end of verse 10 says that he has created us in Christ Jesus to do good works. And you might say, well, hold on. You've just, just been talking for 10 minutes about how we're not saved by works. What's the deal here? Has, has Paul changed his tune? Of course not. We're not saved by our good works. But as the handiwork and the masterpiece of God, we are saved for good works. To do those things that bring our Father God, glory. Our good works are the fruit of the salvation that he's already accomplished in us. John Stott said, good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its ground or means, but as its consequence and evidence. It might be helpful to go back to the story of of Lazarus. I was sitting in Trey Hayes' college class uh, last week, and he was teaching out of John 11, and the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and Trey had many, many great points uh, to make. Uh, but one thing really stood out to me. In John eleven thirty nine, Jesus asked Lazarus' friends to take away the stone. And then after he's prayed to the Father, and Lazarus has emerged from the tomb... He tells Lazarus' friends to take off the grave clothes and let him go. He's he's given Lazarus' friends and companions something to do that will accomplish Jesus' purpose of bringing life. And Trey noted how wonderful it was that Lazarus' buddies had a part in his coming back to life. And here's the point. As new creations brought out of death and into life, 
made alive with, raised with, and seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms as his handiwork, having already experienced our own spiritual resurrection, God is giving you and I the opportunity to participate in the resurrection, to participate in the redemption of the world. He's calling us to join with him in setting the world to rights, in restoring that which was lost, in reclaiming the kingdom and authority that we so easily gave over when we agreed to serve a tyrant instead of the Lord God, our creator. We are God's handiwork, created for those good works. You know, two young boys spent their summer in Missouri playing by some sandbag levees that held back some of the extreme flooding that had taken place in Missouri over the, over the last decade. And tragically, the two boys found themselves, tra- themselves trapped in some quicksand that resulted from a breach in the levee. And, and when rescue workers finally found them and they came to them, they only found a younger brother standing in the sand. And they said, where's your brother? Where's your brother? And the younger boy responded with, I'm standing on his shoulders. The older brother had sacrificed his life for the younger brother. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, because of grace, our older brother Jesus has sacrificed his life for us. He has saved us. And to truly enjoy salvation requires that we join our lives, that we align ourselves with Jesus, the Savior. Some have said the gift cannot be separated from the giver. So here's the question. Are you wearing the grave clothes? Are you wearing the grace clothes? Are you living in the freedom found in a life hidden with Christ? Or are you still bound by the habits of the old life? Are you seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus? Or he's preparing a place for you? Or are you still hanging out in the graveyard? See once again the difference between verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 10. We've got a slide up here and... I just want to go through this. I want you to to even personalize this for yourself. This is your old nature against your new nature. See, you were separated from Christ. You are now united with him. You were dead. Now you are alive. You were, before Christ, disobedient. Now you have the possibility of being obedient to him. You were ruled by spiritual evil Because of Christ, you now share in his rule over spiritual evil. You were an object of God's wrath. You and I are now objects of God's affection. You were walking in sin. Now you walk in good works. You were destined for hell. Now you are seated in the throne room with Jesus who has saved you. As you leave today, out in the the lobby on the welcome table, there are is that card. Love for you to pick one up today and just be reminded in the days and weeks ahead of who you are now in Christ Jesus. Put it on your dash or your bathroom mirror or, or, or put it in your Bible someplace where you're going to see it a lot. Be reminded 
who you are now in Christ Jesus. The grace of God demands a response. We have this opportunity every week to respond. You may have never put on the grace clothes. You may have never joined yourself to the giver of grace. If that's you, we'd love to see you do that today. The water is ready behind us for baptism. We'd love to see you align your life with the Savior and taste this new identity. Know that you walk in a new life, that you're his new creation. Or you may have fallen back into the ways of this world. You remember, we have enemies. We have those that are bent on our destruction. You may have fallen back into sinful nature and you simply need to turn back. We'd love to pray with you today. Or thirdly, because we are on a mission, church, you read through the first verses, the first three verses of Ephesians 2 and it saddens you because you know people who are living outside of that freedom. You know that they're living in the ways of the world. You have people that you know, friends that that your heart aches for and you can't leave them there and you feel that burden this morning that you cannot continue to leave people in the graveyard and you want to recommit today to sharing the foundational truth of the gospel found in Ephesians 2 today. Brothers and sisters, let's practice our new position in Jesus Christ. Whatever need you have today, we'd love for you to come as we stand and worship.